Today's scripture reading comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14, which can be found on page 1315 of the Pew Bibles. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open up your graves and bring you from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Thanks, Ruby. <clears throat> There's a couple in our church that have been trying really hard to have a child and they um, have been told this morning that they're losing that child who's in utero, and I'd like to pray with, pray for them. Would you pray with me? God, we lift up this family to you. We lift up this child, and we pray that the death of this child would not happen by your miraculous power and strength. We do not know your providential will and don't presume, but we also um, seek to call forth the power of the testimony of Jesus and the, the power you gave the prophet to say that dry bones could come back to life by your power. We pray this child would not die and would live and would be a testimony and a monument to your goodness in this church for 20 years. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna be preaching today on this passage and the ones following it um, because they kind of go together. This passage starting in either 36 or in 37 where we're at, sort of starts um, the beginning of the end of the book of Ezekiel where 
God is showing them like the good that he wants to bring about. You've been here, if you've been here for like the last year at High Point, you've been through a lot of really terrible rebuke and God chiding and pushing and pulling and trying to help Israel realize what they've done, why they're in exile, what's that, what that's done to them and everybody else, and how they can be redeemed. And now in chapter 36, he started to turn the tide and actually, even back as far as 34, I'm going to give you new shepherds. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to make the dead rise. I'm going to, right? So um, one of the things that that, one of the questions I ask is the question of human destiny. Um, to, to what extent um, do you wish you knew what your destiny was, like specifically? What, what people usually say is they don't want to know because that sounds more noble they behave as though they desperately want to know. And then if you do in some way find out, it both makes you worse and destroys you trying to be better. <laughs> um, you can see this all through human art, right? You go back to um, Sophocles' Oedipus, the guy who found out he was going to kill his father and marry his mother. And so he tried to do everything he could to stop it and ended up, though he was stronger than all and smarter than all, still doing the same thing, gouging out his eyes and living in exile. Or um, Macbeth is the opposite example, right? He's told by some witches that he'd become king, and it makes, instead of making him better and him trying to pursue some good, it actually makes him worse. He gets the hubris to actually murder the king so that he could become king, and everything falls apart until he ends up dead and everybody he cares about, right? People have all kinds of um, myths we tell ourselves. For example, the great American myth in the 17, 1800s was a manifest destiny that we had somehow been destined by God to own from sea to shining sea, no matter what it took to get there. Or, um, or sometimes there are positive ones, like um, there's, a, there's a quote from a, the universal, universalist preacher um, Theodore Parker in 1853, he said this in a sermon, and you'll recognize this from another American hero. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe, but from what I can see, it bends towards justice. Right, that idea, right, does it, though? If you look at the history of the world, are we ever moving towards ever-increasing justice? How long is the arm of the universe? What guarantee is there of that? How did he find out that was the destiny of justice? Would people in 1944 Germany have said that? Or present-day Uyghur territory? Right? And even more than that, there's, there's, um, there's destinies that we concoct or that people put on us, right? Like, there's all kinds of destinies that people think that they have that people have put on you. Like, you're, you're nothing. You're, you're going to amount to nothing. You're a terrible person. You can't do this. Or, st or stuff that people said that you would do that it has been a trial to you because it feels like too much or that you don't want to live up to it. Or maybe it's just, like, it's just sideways energy. Maybe it's a good thing, but it's not your thing, right? Like, there's all kinds of ways that happens to us. And, um, and there's ways we put that on ourselves. Like, I'll show you. Like, you think I'm not going to be anything? I'll, I'm going to be the president of the United States, right? Um, my wife got me these Harley Davidson leather chaps on her last trip. Um, and she kind of saved you because she, she didn't inform me that you're supposed to wear pants under them. So, um, but, I, you know, so like the, the fact that I have, or someone has put these on me, like, do I have to become a biker now? Like, Lexi's like, I got these for you because I want you to get a motorcycle, right? That's not true. 
Um, I, I did text my 80-year-old mom that it wasn't true before the service, so she wouldn't have a heart attack watching online, you know? Um, but like, these aren't part of me. They're not part of my nature. I put them on me. Somebody put them on me. They can just be taken off, right? Like, and, and when I say that, I'm not, I'm not saying that like, all the stuff in your life that people have put on you or that you've put on yourself that really has nothing to do with your creation and redemption is as easy as this to take off. Like, listen, I'm 44 years old. I've got all kinds of demons I'm fighting. I know and understand that that's not true. But what I do know is that when we embrace redemption, there is a secondary destiny that God puts in that is in conflict with the lying ones. Do you understand? It doesn't wipe away all the lying destinies in us, but it puts another one that tells the truth in conflict with it, so we have a choice, and we can grow, and one can be put to death, and the other made alive more and more as we grow, as we move, as we have our being in Him. Does that make sense? And so one one of the things that you have to recognize is, like, we all kind of wish we could get a hold of our destiny. We all kind of wish we could control how we thought about our destiny, but would it would it really make you better or worse, right? Human beings demonstrate that they desperately want it, or they say they don't want it. It makes them worse. It makes them better. What are we supposed to do with all this? And the, and the answer is, is that God has very specifically decided what he thought would be best, which is he believes that, especially in the worst possible moments of human discouragement, that he wants us to know that his—he will have a final victory, and that, and that that's enough for us to know to understand our present destiny, Amen. right? That the, the Lord of final victory is the Lord of our present destiny. So, so he shows us a certain destiny that we can participate in, his final victory. And then he puts forward us, what does that mean for you, for your present destiny? And that's what he's arguing is, that's all you really need to know. If you knew more, it would be bad. If you knew less, it would be bad, Right? I mean, think about—there's only two people in the entire Bible besides Jesus who nothing negative is said about, right? Daniel and Joseph. Now think about the story of Joseph. How does it go wrong? He has a prophetic dream about his destiny becoming prime minister of Egypt, and it ruins his life, (laughs) right? Now, let me break this down into two parts. The first is that God intentionally reveals his final victory. He intentionally reveals his final victory, right? Um— it's really common to, to preach about Ezekiel 37, about these dry bones coming to life, as an expression merely of the Israelites being told God is going to bring them back. He's going to—like, they feel dead. Like, it literally says in verse 11, they're like, we feel like we're dead. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise you up like out of graves, right? I'm going to send you back. You're going to live in the, in the land. And they're like, this is God encouraging his people. He's going to send them back. They're going to live in the land. He's going to bring about new life for them. But he, here's the problem with that. No, he's not. No, he's not. That's not, that's not what's going to happen. They're going to die in Babylon. That's what's going to happen. Right? This isn't the end of the exile. There's still like 45 or 50 years of exile left. All, the people who hear this, who feel like they're dead and in the grave, they are going to be dead and in the grave in Babylon. They're not even going to be buried in the promised land. Right? If you remember from Genesis, when Joseph dies in Egypt, one of his last requests, he says, take my bones with you when you go and bury me in the promised land. I want to be buried in the promised land. These people are not going to be buried in the promised land. When the Jews come back from captivity 50 years later, they don't bring 160,000 skeletons 
back with them in ossuaries. These people are all buried there. They don't see this. You understand? This is not fulfilled for them. Right? So what are we, so we supposed to do with this, right? What does it, what does it mean? And, and the answer is that what God is showing them is he's showing them a final victory that they're going to participate in, but they're not going to before the grave in their life. Right? He's making them a promise. He's saying, now, and as you look at the rest of the book of Ezekiel, that's what he's laying out. He's, he's, he's saying, one, he's going to raise the dead to life. It, it's actually fashionable right now in Old Testament studies to say that this passage is actually not an Old Testament promise that God was going to raise the dead. Because it's a figurative passage. It's prophetic, right? It's supposed to point to God reviving his people and remaking them into a nation. I think that's true, but too shallow. I think it's, it's probably deeper than just saying this is just about the resurrection from the dead at the end of time. Because clearly this is a promise God is giving in time to his people who are in exile. It is for them. But what we'll find out in just a minute is it's for everybody. And partly the reason it's for everybody is because it's for them and it's about the future resurrection from the dead. It's for everyone. Does that make sense? He's going to resurrect his nation. And part of the way he will finally ultimately do it is by raising from the dead all of the nation of Israel just as he would revive them when he sent them back from exile, like, like being risen from the dead, right? He is the God who can speak a word and make dry bones live again, right? Now, the next two chapters, 38 and 39, is all the nations of the earth fighting God, right? All the nations, north and south and all over, and they come against God and they get destroyed. And what he's saying is, it doesn't matter if the, literally the entire earth stands against me. They will actually, and they will fail. It'll look like they're going to win. It will always look like they're going to win. And then, in the, ve- in the end, at least in the very end, they won't. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks. And then, the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are a new temple. Measured out, described in excruciating detail. I promise this is only going to— we're only going to spend like one or two weeks in those chapters because you probably are not super into exactly how many cubits it was from this door to the external door outside of it, okay? But the, the point is, is that all this experience in incredible, glorious detail, and that temple has never been built. Do you understand? There are, there are shrines in Israel right now where some of the things that modern-day Jews who believe this temple is going to come about have already prepared to put in it because they believe, believing Jews today believe it has not yet been fulfilled. Right? No temple like this was ever made. Even if you, if you say, well, what about the second temple? Like, they built a temple, and they, didn't they? Yeah. And, and the few people who got back to Israel who were alive when they first went into exile, when they saw the new temple, they cried. They wept because it wasn't anywhere near as good as Solomon's temple. And then later in Jesus' day, when Herod had spent a couple of generations building up the greatest temple the Jews had ever had, Herod's temple, it wasn't but a quarter of the size of the one in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Does that make sense? Now, the reason why that's important is because God believes that these people who are in Babylon, who are utterly lost, who have no hope, who don't—they have no idea what it means to follow God in the country they're in. God is trying to help them say, I know, I know. You have no idea how many people, how many Christians, how many people who are going to belong to me are going to feel that way. I know that some of, some of us feel that way, like right now. And I, and I know that some of us feel that way and feel ashamed that we feel that way because we're cognizant— 
cognizant that there are Christians in China and in North Korea and in Iran and that there were Christians in Nazi Germany and in the Gulag Archipelago in the worst moments of human history and to say that we feel like it's difficult right now feels like the stupidest thing you could possibly imagine saying. But the problem is, is that human emotion acclimates to where it's at and this feels sucky for you. <laughs> and for a lot of us, like, we didn't have our character forged in concentration camps. And so this may feel like a really difficult time. And it's okay, right? It, yes, it's true. Our Christian brothers in the gulag would have laughed, right? And then they probably would have hugged you and, like, tried to give you some good advice, you know? If you, one of the ways in which you can tell that th these chapters of Ezekiel are pointing to a final victory to encourage us is that if you look at the last chapters of Revelation, there's, it's, there's like a very strong parallel between these chapters in Ezekiel and those chapters in the book of Revelation. And actually, John even you calls probably Rome Babylon because he, he wants everybody to pick up on the fact that he's paralleling this future promise in Ezekiel that has never been fulfilled to the future promise in Revelation that has not yet been fulfilled. Right? But if you work through those chapters, there's a, a lot of parallels, right? There's, there is the resurrection of people in chapter 37. There's what's called the first resurrection in Revelation 20, right? And then you have the new King David in chapter 37. You have King Jesus showing up in chapter 19. You have Gog and Magog in the next two chapters. Then the, literally the final army that Jesus defeats is called Gog and Magog. It's like the only two places they're used in the Bible are those two places. And there's a great battle, and in both places, like, God calls all the birds of the air to come and feast a disgusting meal over all of the slain throughout the earth. And it just goes on, right? There's a new temple, and then a new city, and the city of God. And in both places, there's an angel with a particular ruler who measures everything, so that in both cases, you can know how amazing the thing that's being built is, right? And then it ends with the river of life flowing out. So you see, see how this works? The people in Babylon who had no hope, no future, had no idea what it meant to follow God in their day. They weren't going to see the triumph of God. They weren't going to be the people of God in Israel. They were just exiles in some moment in history that they happened to inhabit. And they were going to get buried, like, far from the promises of God. Do you see how that's, like, that's me? That I'm that person? Like, like who am I in this story? It's 2022. We're kind of having a pandemic. Everybody's angry. There's inflation. It's cold. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not exactly the hot spot of divine action in human history, as far as I can tell. Am, are we out of God's plan? I don't know. Do I have a job to do in God's name? Yes. Like, what, what's going on? Right? And the answer is the same thing that's always going on. Right? And then you fast forward 600 years to first century John, exiled in Patmos, Christians getting murdered by the Roman Empire, it being a horrible time to be a Christian, and he, he receives and he writes the revelation. It's the same promises, right? You guys, like 600 years later, look ahead, right? What's coming is this great resurrection. God vindicating himself, him bringing in his final kingdom, him showing us that beauty, it all looking like this. We're going to be part of this final victory. That's our destiny. Amen. Right? And so like you fast forward a couple thousand years, like it's literally exactly the same thing, except fewer Roman soldiers strangling us at the moment. Okay? But like throughout the world though, Christians are—a lot of Christians are struggling. And, and honestly, like— there are many ways to struggle, and I don't want to minimize tortures and gulags. 
but being intellectually poisoned from the outside by a culture that despises the Lord and has so many tools to tempt us in a thousand different directions. I mean, Scripture teaches that affluence and pressure destroy faith horrifically. I mean, that's what—think about why did the northern kingdom, when the kingdom split in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom rushed away from God? What we know historically is they did really well in terms of wealth. Like, we hear about their wickedness in the Bible, but when we excavate what happened, they were doing really well economically. They were on some of the best land agriculturally in Israel, and they had trade routes, the best trade routes to everyone in the Near East and in Africa. They did really well financially, and they had their, their alternative religion that was pretty close to God's faith. I mean, think about this. What is, what is secular Americanism, right? It's like, be good to people, be kind and compassionate. You don't really have to be, but you have to say it, right? Like, be wealthy, be like, you just go through this, it's like this vaguely Christian, you can do whatever you want, but it's like vaguely morally Christian, you know? But you could like, you don't have to believe in God at all, right? It's like this malaise-ish similarity, you know? That's kind of like, it's sticky. And like, you can see how like you're a young person, you want to go along to get along. You like, your most important thing is to fit in. And then like, there's all this affluence pulling you in. And then there's all these myriad of false prophets TikToking their way into your life or whatever. Or if you're old, Facebooking their way into your life. And like, li listen to me. Like, I some of the most interesting sci-fi shows are when you, you, you can get somebody into an alternative reality and they don't know they're in an alternative reality and you can mess with their head in incredibly horrific ways. There's this um, episode of Black Mirror. I'm not encouraging you to watch the show. Um, where there's this woman and you're, you're supposed to cheer her from, her from the very beginning of the show because she's a black woman, right? So you're like, oh, she must be the protagonist, right? And so— um, and she's like running and everybody's trying to kill her. Like there's people with machetes and guns and it's like it's this horrific and like she's like hiding in a grocery store and people won't help her and everybody's trying to kill her and she runs and she goes here and she goes there and it's like the most horrific thing, traumatic thing you could possibly imagine. You're like, oh my gosh, what the heck is going on? And there's people just holding up their phones like recording her like this and like not helping her and you're like, what dystopia is this, right? And at the end of the episode, they wake her up and she's in a game show and apparently she had like tortured and murdered somebody. And this was her punishment, to run her through this scenario again and again and again without her knowing it. And that was the worst torture they could imagine for her, right? Now, now think about this. Imagine you grew up in an alternate reality in which a thousand false prophets told you everything that was false. It was kind of sort of true, but that confused your humanity. Like, think about this. You might live in that. Do you understand? And that might be worse in some ways than being tortured, but knowing your torturer was a demon and knowing what the truth was. Right? And so this message that God is revealing his final victory, he will reverse the work of human power. He will reject the idolatry of all people. He will overturn the pronouncements of us, of people who think that they get to say who's on the right side of history. He will himself show who is vindicated and who is not. The history books that will be written, the blog posts that have been typed, will be erased 
from the mem memory of history and of, the, and of eternal human destiny, and God will decide who the heroes have been, and they will not be who we think. Amen. Either out in the world or probably here in the church. Right? And he will win this victory. And we, like the, like the exiles and like John on Patmos and the Christians in the first century, we will not see it before our graves. And so God says in Ezekiel 37, he says, listen, you think a vast army is going to come and conquer me, and you think that my vast army has already been killed and is lying dead in, a in like some valley, and there is no mountain of the Lord, there's only the valley of death where there are many and very dry bones. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to reverse that in the most dramatic way you can possibly imagine. And all of your future destiny, everything about you as a human being, depends on whether or not you believe me. Everything depends on that. Right? Do you see how that's precisely what he did in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself? Right? Jesus is utterly truthful, lives according to the will of God exactly, right? Is murdered by powerful men who think they get to dictate what history is going to be, right? They, they whip him, they destroy him, they disperse his followers, they kill him, they throw him in a grave, right? And God, through sheer miraculous power, simply reverses their judgment and raises his Christ from the dead and makes him king. Right? And that is the first fruits of the whole thing. Right? We're, we're like, on Easter, we're like, the resurrection is amazing. The resurrection is amazing. But you just freaking wait. Okay? You just wait. You think that's amazing? It's amazing. It is incredibly amazing. It is not the first drop of the ocean of amazing. You understand? And for some of us, it's like, well, I just want to live forever. I just, I, it's dead. That's going to be amazing. Resur but listen, also vindication is going to be amazing. People who have been unjustly treated. Peoples who have been oppressed and unjustly treated. All the things people thought they could do because they had the power to do it. It's literally the opposite, right? The whole message of Ezekiel is what? Throw away your pragmatic idols of success, your false gods. In it, turn from your wickedness and your detestable actions. Therefore, you must turn away from all the ways you let yourself do it through injustice. And you have to let go of your ability to make it happen through violence. You have to turn from all of these things, right? And God, because you don't want to be on that side when the divine king reverses the testimony of pagan history. And what God is saying is that's enough. That, that truth about his final victory is enough for our present destiny. That's what he's saying. That makes sense i got to skip a couple of slides here. I covered this. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Second. So God's final destiny frames our present destiny, right? It, he's framing our present destiny. You can see here that it, God says, oh, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, wait, sorry. He says, he says, son of man, these bones are, are the whole house of Israel. They say that is the house of Israel. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. This is different prophesied to them. This is what I'm going to do, right? You see, um, this passage is spoken in to a particular historical moment. And here's why. Because by definition, if there's ever a prophetic word, it has to be spoken into a particular historical moment. It couldn't be otherwise. 
That has no bearing on its universal applicability to everybody who belongs to God. Everybody who, by metaphor or truth, can identify with the people of Israel, which is all who believe. Right? That's about us. I mean, if for whatever reason you would say that honestly, this is true. If you're like, look, listen, I feel like, I just feel like that. I just feel like that because it's winter. You know? Sometimes I wonder, like, if there doesn't have to be a sun in heaven— because the Lord and the Lamb is the sun, does that mean like it's always like summer sun? You know, is there no— if the tree of the river of life bears it through every month, that means there's no winter, right? Anyway, the point is, for whatever reason you're discouraged, right, this passage is ultimately about death-level discouragement. Discouragement that feels like your bones are dried up, right? And that's who it's for. Whether this moment, whether the moment of John and Revelation, whether now. Does that make sense now? Um, one of the reasons this is important relative to our present destiny is because the thing God really puts in front of us is faith. Will you believe? So, so what are you going to believe, right? And, and the question is something like this. There is this whole regime of pragmatism and what the Bible would call something like godlessness or worldliness, which is this. You can't trust God is going to reverse things in the end in a final victory. That isn't going to happen. So how should you then live knowing that's not going to happen? And the answer is, however you can get by. Whatever is best for you. Whatever works. Right? And what, what God is saying is he's saying, what self, the reason why Christian salvation comes down to faith is not so that bad people can say they, can, they believe in Jesus and can go to heaven and so all of salvation can be a sham. No, it's not. It's because all of worldliness, all of pride, all of things set up against God diminishes the capacity of the heart to believe what it must to be good, do what's right, and to live according to godliness or righteousness. And if all of it comes down to that, then the thing that says, no, I will not capitulate. I will not stand down. I will not disbelieve. I will not lose my heart. I will not do what I know takes away the very thing that makes me a human being and that connects me to the truth and the goodness of God. I will not do it. That's called faith. And what God knows is if that is present, everything else that is necessary will follow from it. And if that is not present, nothing that else that is involved in faith can happen. So all of salvation, therefore, must come down to faith. It's not like God went through the virtues one day. He's like, okay, I'm going to pick one of these, just arbitrarily. And I'm going to pick one that has nothing to do with the rest of them, and that people who don't believe in me will really hate me for picking as the thing that makes people mine. No, he did it because it is the thing that makes everything else, right? And so you have to decide who you're going to be and how far you're willing to go to be that person. Okay. One of, our, one of our Christmas movies in the Gibson household is the movie Klaus. Which loves, I love, it's, like, it's basically my favorite Christmas movie other than the other four. And um, there's this character in it, Alva, who's the teacher, right? But so she goes to this like really, really dreary village, and she, um, she comes to be a teacher, and she finds out everybody hates each other so much, nobody wants to learn. Right? So she, you could tell she's a sacrifice. I mean, she came to this like podunk place, sacrificially to teach, and nobody wants to learn, but she didn't have the money to get back. So she becomes a fishmonger. So she turns her whole classroom into this, like, fish sale place, and she, like, becomes this expert in, like, cutting up fish and throwing them around and making money, just cutting up fish. Because you got to go along to get along in a place where nobody cares about anything, right? And then there's this point where, like, something good is starting to happen among the children, and they want to learn. 
right? And she has to make this decision, like, who am I going to be? Because I can't really be both of these people. I can't save money to get out of here and use my money to help these kids to learn so that something good can happen here. I can't do both, right? You can see this in a million stories, but this is just one example, right? Like, ultimately, that's what faith is. It's realizing the two things you can't be both of, and that the one is in the image of God, and the other is the rejection of him to creation of some false idol. And you say, who am I going to be? Who am I going to be? And you say, I'm, I'm going to be this one to hell with, literally, this other me. Right? And then, what are you willing to do to get there? One of the funny things about this movie is, the guy who starts to, like, get everything going in the right direction did it for kind of a fraudulent reason. And right at the climax, when they're going to risk everything to do the greater good that they want to do, he's, like, shown to be a fraud, and it seems like he's left. Right? And the question is, in that moment, do you give up too? Right? One of the, one of the cool things about this character, Alva, is, like, when, when he walks, like, she's changed kind of because of him. But when he walks and she thinks he's gone, she doesn't quit. She's changed. She's, she's going to see this as far as it goes. Like, even if the person who was the leader is gone, doesn't matter. I've decided who I was going to be, and I've decided how far I was willing to go to do it. And you see, ultimately, that's what it means to take hold spiritually of your own destiny. That's your destiny. It's not a prophecy. It's not you knowing the future. It's you knowing in your bones who you are and how far you're willing to go to be that person. And if you know those two things, you know your destiny. And if you don't know those two things, I don't care what else you know, you don't know who you are, and you don't know what your destiny is. So, diagnostically, when we embrace that about how God is showing us our destiny by his final victory, and we realize what that means for us, we decide who we're going to be and how far we're willing to go, we realize that we're going to need more of God and what he's going to do in us to get there. Because we're going to face a lot. So we start pursuing what Scripture might call the virtues of holiness. Pursuing godliness. Because we're going to need that. And as we do that, we're going to grow spiritually stronger so that when the moment comes where we either live by the testimony of Jesus or something else, we're strong enough to stand. That's it. I mean, that, remember that's what it says in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God? Put on the armor of God so that in the day of the trial, you can what? Not even win. Just stand. Just don't quit, right? And that's actually heroism in the Christian faith. That's what a martyr is. Marturion means someone who gives the, mar the, martur the martyrus, the, the, the testimony, right? The person who tells the truth from their own lips, no matter what happens to them, is the hero. Right? And that's actually how the story kind of ends. Right? There's this place in Revelation where um, John has seen all these things, and this angel comes in, one who has carried the very plagues of God onto the earth. And he's, he's done doing that. He shows up, and he's such an amazing creature. He's like, I don't know, an archangel or something. I don't, I don't know how the angels display rank, okay? But he's like, he's pretty amazing. And it says this. It says, the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And then John says this, At this I felt his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so this is an angelic creature that if you saw, you would worship as God. And when John seeks to do that, he says, Stop. 
You and I serve the same thing. We're not masters. Neither of us are masters. I am a servant of this one thing. And he says this. Brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus, he says, worship God. How do you worship God? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, that sounds cryptic. It's not really that cryptic. Okay. From whence comes the truth and the power of dry bones live? Dead people have life come back into you. How does that literally happen in the New Testament? Peter says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Yeah. Right? That, that there is God—it's not, it's not an incantation. It's not magic. It's not like you say, in the name of Jesus, X, and X happens. It is to say that the Spirit of God, in its truth and power, flows according to his victory. And his victory has been impersoned in the man Jesus Christ. His, his life, his death, his resurrection, his embracing of the good, his coming into humanity as perfect manhood, and by definition, in relationship, womanhood, in perfect humanity. He has died for our sins. He's been raised for our justification. He was destroyed by evil men. He was raised by the power of God in a prequel to final victory. He is the returning Lord of Lords and Kings of Kings, and his name, when he comes, is the Word of God. The testimony about Jesus is, is the power, it's the spirit that is in prophecy. It is when the Word of God is spoken, it is the, it is the testimony of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so, what does that mean for us? I mean, imagine, imagine that. Imagine you're like in the first century, right? If you get caught being a Christian, the Romans can either force you to burn incense to the emperor as God, or you, they'll kill you. Okay, that's the world you live in. And John says, the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Right? The, that, those very words that can get you killed, but that are also your very identity. The thing that you share in service with the archangels of God that you would worship if you saw. That thing that you both share together, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Everything that is spoken into the world that can change it, that can heal it, that can tell it the truth, that can wake it up from the phantasmal alternative reality it's really living in, everything that can break chains and loose bonds, everything that can point people to the truth and heal them in their humanity and lead them to the God who is not an idol, all of it is rooted in the truth of Jesus, what he is and what he's done. And so that is— two possible applications. The first is this. God's prophetic solution for your bone-drying discouragement is to believe the testimony of Jesus. It is the spirit of prophecy to raise you from the dead. Okay? To save your soul, to give you the peace of God by forgiving your sins, by giving you the knowledge of the presence of God in your loneliness, by putting you, an orphan, into the family of the people of God who are changed and redeemed by him, by telling you that even to the extent to which you have experienced the new birth, but that you still feel like a failure, that the day is coming when you are going to receive the last and final heart of flesh for whatever stone remains in your chest. When the, your struggle with hardness will be gone, when your capacity to believe and allow yourself to feel what is beautiful and to take complete and total joy in it will be put into you and the inability that will be put away forever is in the testimony, the truth of what Jesus has done and is going to do. All of it. Everything else is first fruits. 
Everything else is appetizers. Even the resurrection of Jesus himself. God will bring about his final victory. And whether you don't believe yet, this is the solution. This is the remedy. This is the resurrection. Whether you do believe, whatever state you find yourself in, this is the solution. This is the remedy. This is the resurrection. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So as we get ready to um, take communion of the Lord's Supper and to declare his resurrection until he comes, pray with me. Sing with me. Let's, let's try to actually open up every part of the core of who we are to the truth that he gives us so that we can be, whether we're buried in Babylon, we can be people who know that we will be raised part of the victory in the city of God. God, I, th- I want to thank you for this chapter, and I pray that you would make us people who understand that you raise dry bones and that you do it, um, you do it metaphorically, emotionally, personally, in all kinds of ways that we can apply right now. And we know about that because you have promised in a hundred ways, especially in the resurrection of Jesus himself, that you will do it in your final victory. And we we offer ourselves to be helped in believing that your final victory is enough to guide our personal destiny. Holy Spirit, come and help us to believe it more deeply. Help us to believe it against the things that won't accept it. Help the places in us and the parts of us that just do not want to accept that for fear, for hurt, to really be able to create this release that we don't even know how to make in ourselves, God. Remove those inhibitions and do something supernatural because, and I I say this prophetically as the testimony of Jesus, that you would heal us and help us to believe the truth. In Jesus' name.